And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you come now? Would you send your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word? Would you remove the blindness from our eyes and the fogginess from our hearts and enable us to see your son Jesus, to rejoice in him, to hear him, and to be transformed into his likeness? In Jesus' name we ask, amen. If you could turn me down just a little bit, brother. In the 15th century, a huge block of marble was excavated and painstakingly carried to the city of Florence, Italy, where it was meant to be turned into a statue to adorn the church cathedral in that city. After examining the rock, two sculptors rejected it, citing its poor quality. It was too heavy and too expensive to discard, and so there it sat for a quarter of a century. Until a 26-year-old artist got to work on the project. And in four years, Michelangelo, with mallet and chisel in hand, extracted from that mediocre marble a 17-foot masterpiece that we know today as the Statue of David. In the passage before us, the great artist of heaven takes a rejected block of stone, a tax collector by the name of Levi, and with his infinite mercy, he hammers and chisels and shapes the man into a masterpiece of his grace. Here we learn that in Jesus Christ, there is infinite grace for scoundrels of every kind. This is the summary of my passage this morning. The grace of God turns scoundrels into saints who follow Jesus, throw great parties, and get into fight, fights with religious people. The grace of God turns scoundrels into saints who follow Jesus, throw great parties, get into fights with religious people. The text before us is for the sinner. The text before us is for the scoundrel, for the derelict, for the defector, for those who have come to the end of themselves. This text is treatment from the good physician for the sin-diseased and for the war-torn and so if that's you this morning, welcome. I have good news for you. The doctor is in. But, but if you consider yourself good, put together, better than most, I'm afraid 
I have little to nothing for you. I would encourage you, though, to take a closer look in the mirror of God's inerrant word and to pray that he would show you mercy and that he would let you see what is true of you. That you, like all of us here, have a great need for God's grace. Here we encounter in Jesus Christ one of the things about Jesus Christ that religious people hate. He eats and drinks with sinners. I read one author this week who said that Jesus Christ was killed because of who he ate with. I think that's overstated, but the point is well made. Religious people, those who believe themselves to be good because they keep rules to be separate from sinners, are not only spiritually diseased, but their very religion has inoculated themselves against the cure to their disease, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll unpack this section in three parts. First, we will look at Jesus summoning scoundrels in verses 27 to 28. Second, we will look at Jesus dining with derelicts in verses 29 to 30. And then we will see Jesus fighting with Pharisees in verses 31 to 32. So that's how it's teed up this morning. Let's, let's take a look at verses 27 and 28 and get to work there. Jesus summons scoundrels. Let's read those verses again. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And after leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So Jesus is putting together his team. And when Jesus is putting together his team, notice he doesn't go after the morally upright or the theologically astute or the spiritually disciplined folks of his day. He goes after blocks of rejected marble, a crew of everyday sinners. This is hardly the dream team that you and I might assemble if we were seeking to set the world ablaze with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, this is who Jesus puts together. And we'll look at this a little bit closer when we, next month when we get to chapter 6. But the men that Jesus picks to run with him runs against standard convention. Just consider who we have so far. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Four recently unemployed professional fishermen. Now, they're not dummies, to be sure, but, I mean, let's just say they don't have MBAs from Chapel Hill. I mean, there's no Fortune 500 companies looking for Peter to be their CEO. His list of leadership qualifications will have a hard time fitting on a 3 by 5 index card. We've got four unemployed fishermen on the team, and next up in the draft is a tax collector by the name of Levi. And from one simple sentence in verse 27, we have everything that we need to know about this man, Levi. He is a tax collector. And now it's, it's somewhat difficult for us to understand just how universally despised tax collectors were to the Jewish people. One commentator I read this week described the wound at the center of every Jewish heart was the Gentile occupation of the promised land. 
the land which God had given to Israel was now occupied by the Romans. And the Jews were forced to pay taxes to the Romans. And you should know that the Roman tax system was messed up. So it was the collection of taxes was farmed out to the highest bidder. So a population, an area, region would be assessed, and the tax liability for that region would be set. And the job of collecting the taxes for that region went to the highest bidder. So Rome said, we need this much, and then a bidder would come along and say, I will give you that much and this much more, and the highest bidder wins the contract. And tax collectors made money for themselves by collecting even more money than they promised to Rome, keeping the rest for themselves. And so the tax system itself lent itself to all kinds of abuse. Nobody ever knew exactly how much taxes they owed. Tax collectors could levy almost whatever tax they wanted. And you couldn't argue with them. You couldn't throw your tea in the harbor. And people tried putting up a fight against this system, and it did not go well for them. Rome was very powerful, and Rome didn't care how they got their money. They just cared that they got their money. And to make matters worse, the people they hired to collect Jewish taxes were Jewish people. And these men were scoundrels, considered turncoats. They were stealing money from their own countrymen, to give to the Roman Gentile overlords. And they made themselves filthy rich in the process. They were thieves. And because they were in bed with the Gentiles, they were considered unclean, unfit to stand in the presence of God. And thus, in many places, they were barred from the very synagogue itself. This is Levi, sitting in his tax booth, on the main road, on the edge of town, as farmers and merchants would pass by and he would collect whatever taxes he demanded. And Jesus comes to Levi. And Luke says, he sees him. The word see there implies an attentive, contemplative gaze, not a quick glance. You have to imagine that a lot of people in those days would avoid eye contact with a tax collector because you never knew. He was a variable. You never knew what he was going to ask of you. But not Jesus. Jesus looked at him. Jesus saw the statue in the block of rejected marble sitting at that tax booth. A lot of people saw a crook, but Jesus saw the man. And what's more, Jesus picked him to be on the team. He said, follow me. Now, of course, this should give hope to all of us, right? Because the reality is that all of us are a lot more like Levi than we maybe care to admit. Like him, we're sitting at our own proverbial tax booth, taking from people as they come into our lives. Like Levi, How often have we used people to get what we want out of life? I mean, we may not steal money like he did, but that doesn't mean that we're not thieves. 
How many of us take and take and take from relationships? And the moment that he or she no longer offers that giving service to us, we simply discard that relationship and move on to another. How often have we stolen credit for something that someone else did? How often do we scrutinize and question motives of others and knock them down just a notch, are stingy in our compliments and quick in our criticisms, just so that no one is viewed better than they actually are? By which, of course, no one is viewed better than us. How different are we from Levi? I'm afraid we're not that much different at all. And so to my fellow Levi's in this room, I say this. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you in spite of your sin and despite your sin. And Jesus calls you to himself. Follow me. Why does Jesus call Levi? Why did Jesus call you? If you think it was because of your quick wit and sunny disposition, you have another thing coming. And if you will have eyes to see, you will notice that Jesus' choice of Levi came before any change in the man. Notice Jesus set his electing love on Levi before Levi cleaned up his life and left his scoundrel ways. And this is something that drives religious people crazy. Saving grace precedes sanctifying grace. And now I'm not good at math. I went to Botkins after all, but even I can see that verse 27 appears in my Bible before verse 28. Verse 27 appears before verse 28. Before Levi left his life of sin, Jesus set his love on him. And the same is true of you, dear sinner. Before you left your life of sin, Jesus set your life, his love on you. You don't need to clean up your life to come to Jesus. Friend, just come. And he will have mercy upon you. And he will clean up your life. After all, he is the master sculptor. Submit yourself to his loving hammer and chisel. And he will shape you into a 17-foot monument to his glorious grace. Levi left everything to follow Jesus. And so must we. We must leave everything to follow Jesus. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, I'm glad you're here. But I have to ask, what's holding you back from following Jesus? Friend, you should know that without Christ, your life won't amount to anything. Look, 2,000 years later, the only reason we know the man Levi is because he, in response to God's call, left his life of sin, rose, and followed Jesus. And there are a lot of good reasons to think that the Levi that we just read is Matthew. The very same Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. One of the four Gospels that the Lord has used to change millions of lives. 
So if you want your life to count for something, turn to Jesus Christ today. That by his death and resurrection, he has secured a place for sinners like you in his eternal kingdom. Repent of your sin. Believe in the gospel. Before you leave this place today, tap someone on the shoulder and tell them you would like to become a Christian. Twice now in Luke chapter 5, we read that Jesus calls the people to himself and they left everything and followed him. Because, friend, that's simply what it means to be a Christian. It means that you are all in. Levi had to leave his unsavory ways behind him. And don't miss this. His source of income. He's still under contract to Rome. Following Jesus was costly for Levi. Is it any less costly for you? It isn't. It isn't. I found that some people understand following Jesus to be a little bit like following someone on Facebook. With a lot of things that fill up their life, a lot of things fill up their news feed, a lot of people, a lot of interests. And Jesus maybe gets a, a post here and there. It's called a news feed because we feed upon it. And for some, Jesus is just one of the things, one of the many things they feed upon. But that's not what following Jesus is like. Following Jesus means leaving your old life behind and putting Jesus at the very center of your life. It means abandoning your own desire for self-rule and submitting yourself to him and to his word in all things. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Have you done this? I pray you have. Levi the tax collector. Levi the turncoat. Levi the scoundrel receives mercy and follows Jesus. What did Levi do to deserve this? What did Levi do to deserve this mercy? Nothing except the sin that required it. But God specializes in showing this kind of mercy. And as we're about to see in a minute, there are two responses to God-sized mercy like this. One is to celebrate the man Jesus. And the other is to complain about the man Jesus, which is what we see in the verses that follow. So let's pick up reading verse 29 to 30. And Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Levi does what every sinner saved by grace does. He throws a party. Luke says that Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. This scoundrel, this seedy, greedy, despised, rejected man who's been saved by the grace of God throws a party for the king of heaven. And he invites his friends. And who are Levi's friends? Birds of a feather. Tax collectors. Verse 29 says, a large company of tax collectors 
and some others. Now remember, Levi's a rich man. So this is a like proper party. This is a party party. There are a lot of food, a lot of guests. And I mean, Levi's got saved just a couple of hours ago. So he doesn't know how Christians live. He doesn't know how Christians party. He doesn't know what's in bounds. He's just celebrating God's kindness to him. And he wants all of his friends to know what God has done for him. And Luke writes, they're reclining at table. Jesus dining with the derelicts. Now, back then, of course, they didn't use chairs and tables like we do today. Dining tables were down real close to the ground, and they would recline as they ate. It is really difficult for Westerners like us to understand the significance of sharing a meal in the ancient Near East. To share a meal with someone was to honor them. It was a statement of acceptance that we're good with each other. And so for a holy man like Jesus of Nazareth to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners in their home, to share a meal with sketch people, would have defied cultural and social taboos. But Levi don't know this, and he doesn't care. He's celebrating his Savior. He's throwing him a feast, and Jesus has no problem going to this. This is what scoundrels saved by grace do. They celebrate the Lord. They feast on his behalf. They throw parties in honor of their Savior. They have fun. But not everyone is celebrating. There are some who are complaining. After the party is over, the Pharisees, who of course didn't go to the party... They come to the disciples with a complaint. Now, you remember from last week, the Pharisees were the religious elites of Jesus' day. They were legalists who believed that God liked you because you kept your life clean and you kept separate from bad people and bad things. And the more separate that you were, the more deserving you were of God's favor. And boy, did they hate that Jesus is chilling with Levi and his friends. Because nothing exposes religious people like the celebration of God's grace to sinners. While tax collectors are celebrating, these religious people are complaining. Well, they can't help it. Religious people hate it when Christians have fun. And in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, you remember the prodigal son, the older brother? Does the same thing as these Pharisees. He's complaining. Because his father showed mercy to his wayward brother and throws him a party. And nothing has changed. When God gives grace to scoundrels, legalists and Pharisees, religious people, they flip their lid. Because to them, God's favor and acceptance is for those who keep God's law. I have God's favor because I keep God's rules. I am blessed because I've done the right things. I've made good decisions in my life. And God's, God's acceptance of me is based on my obedience to him. And the fact that Jesus chooses this Levi, this tax collector, before Levi even separated himself from this unholy life and then hangs out with him, it drives them nuts. The very essence of grace undermines the whole pharisaical system. Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, listen to me. 
Phariseeism, legalism is in our bloodstream. It is embedded in our heart. You scratch any Christian and right under the skin you will find strains of legalism. And it's something we must fight against every day. There is something in us which traces its roots all the way back to the Garden of Eden, which rejects any notion that God's acceptance of a sinner is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not a result of works. And that's why Pharisees believed that there were certain members of society who were unworthy of their fellowship, let alone Jesus' fellowship. But those of you who have been with us in this series, what have we learned so far in Luke chapter 5? We've learned the opposite of that, haven't we? We've learned that Jesus isn't repulsed by the unworthy. Jesus goes to the unworthy and makes them worthy. At the beginning of the chapter, rough and tumble fishermen, sinful men, didn't have to fix their lives before Jesus called them. He just called them. The leper doesn't have to clean up his life before Jesus touches him. Jesus just touches him. The lame man doesn't walk to Jesus. The lame man walks away from Jesus after Jesus healed him. And Levi doesn't have to clean up his life before the Lord calls him. The Lord calls him, and then the Lord cleans up his life. What you see in Luke chapter 5 is Jesus Christ touching what is untouchable with the grace of Almighty God. And this is what has the Pharisees in a bunch. All upset. And do they bring their complaints to Jesus? Of course not. They go to the disciples. Verse 30. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Notice tax collectors and others is what Luke described them as, but the Pharisees is tax collectors and sinners. This is the only category they know. But you see what they're asking them, don't you? I mean, what do you guys think about this? Eating and drinking with sinners. I mean, look how they live. Look how they dress. Listen to how they talk. They're not like us. And Levi, a tax collector on your team? Are you, are you okay with this? Now remember, we're still in Galilee. We might actually still be in Peter's hometown. It is possible, possible that Levi is Peter's own tax collector. We can't be sure of this, of course, but it's at least possible that these two men knew each other. And it sure seems like something Jesus would do. Take Peter and a tax collector and put them on the same team. And the reason is, is because Peter needed, desperately needed, to learn about the legalism in his own heart. Because you remember, this will not be the last time Religious people come to Peter and say, why do you eat and drink with them? Do you remember Galatians chapter 2? The apostle Peter is in the 
town of Antioch after the resurrection of Jesus, and certain men come down from Jerusalem, and they begin to pressure Peter to stop eating with Gentile Christians, and he gives in to the pressure. And he withdraws from his Gentile Christian brothers and sisters. And the apostle Paul has to come along and rebuke Peter in front of everyone. And Paul tells him, you are walking in a way that is out of accord with, out of step with your confession of the gospel. And the Pharisees are seeking to do the very same thing to these disciples. They're seeking to separate them from the master. He dines with derelicts. He summons the scoundrel. He calls himself the friend of sinners. And you are okay with this? Now, you might be wondering, Pastor, I thought we were supposed to be separate from the world. I mean, aren't we supposed to be unleavened? Doesn't the Bible say, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Isn't there something about, like, bad company ruining good morals? Well, there's a lot to say in response to that, but I'll let Paul explain. So this afternoon, if you have a chance, read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is verses 9 to 13. Paul will explain. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Well, since then, you would, have, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he tells them to purge this evil person from among them. And just so you know, the apostle Paul didn't come up with this. He got this from Jesus. Jesus, in John chapter 17, prayed this very thing for his disciples to his father. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see, there's a difference between being separate from the world and separated from the world. And this is the difference between a Pharisee and a saint. You remember from a couple of weeks ago, the word Pharisee means separated one. The word saint means called out one. You see, the Pharisee believes himself to be separate from the world. The saint understands herself that she is called out of the world by God's grace and then sent back into the world with God's grace. If you're still trying to work out how this all how plays... We'll give Jesus the final word on this matter. Verse 31. And Jesus answered them. Notice it was Jesus answered. They came to the disciples, but Jesus answered. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
So verse 30, the Pharisees come to the disciples. Verse 31, Jesus answers for them. This is good practice, by the way. When you're confronted with a legalist, let Jesus speak for you. And Jesus teaches us that church is like a hospital. No one is offended when sick people turn up in the hospital. And nor should we be offended when sinners turn up in church. Some, some years ago, when our church was new, I remember hearing a dude drop the F-bomb in the foyer, telling off-color jokes. And of course, I addressed it with him. But this man did not know Jesus. It was the way he spoke. He was just trying to fit in. He was just trying to get us to like him. Sick people go to hospital. Sinners go to church. And I've told Cornerstone this several times. But if God is pleased to answer my prayer and bring revival to the city, there may be a time when you might not want to leave your purse unattended in your pew. Your offering may go from 10% to 100% that week. <laughs> now, it's not that we want people to misbehave in church. It's that we want people who misbehave to be in church. Because where else would we want them to be on the Lord's Day? If the gospel is faithfully preached, then I think we should expect that the Lord will draw the unsavory and the seedy and the sleazy to hear it and to be transformed by it. So if on a Sunday morning you find someone here whose behavior seems unchristian, you have a choice that you can make. Well, you can act like the Pharisees and complain about it. Or you can remind yourself that when the Lord Jesus came to you, you weren't much more than a giant rejected block of marble. And only God knows the amount of hours and years it took of his chiseling and shaping of you to turn you into the fine specimen of spiritual purity that I see before me today. Friends, we are all blocks of rejected marble being shaped by the master's gentle hand. And so here's my encouragement to you when you encounter that unchristian person. I would encourage you to show the same grace to them that God has shown to you and to engage them with the same gentleness and patience and mercy which the Lord has shown to you. And if you want to go big league, invite them into your home. Share a meal with them and ask about their story and share your testimony of God's grace in your own life. If you find out that they're a new Christian, or if you find out that they're not even a Christian, then assert yourself and ask them if they might want to start a Bible study with you. Well, if there's any help to you, the Apostle Paul was probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. At the end of his life, called himself the chief of sinners. Because the more that you know of the grace of God, 
the more you recognize how much you need the grace of God, and the more you recognize how much you have used the grace of God, and the more willing you become to demonstrate the grace of God to others. So humble yourself, dear brothers and sisters. There is tremendous joy and freedom in the humble sinner celebrating God's grace in their own life and in the lives of others. C.S. Lewis defined the delight of humility as the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who do not sin have no need of a savior. The call of Christ is for sinners and sinners only. Because only the thirsty will taste the living water. Only rejected marbles, rejected blocks of marble get turned into statues of God's glorious grace. And so if you would, join with me as we take a moment and we confess our sin to our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we have thought more highly of ourselves than we ought. The Father, we have been much more like the Pharisees than we care to admit, looking down on others. And the sad irony is, Lord, that we have accepted your forgiveness of our sins while withholding the same from others. And our pride has blinded us from seeing our pride. Will you please forgive us? Yet, Lord, you have seen fit this morning to show us mercy. You've exposed the Pharisee who lives just under our skin. You've exposed hypocrisy and self-delusion. And would you please continue to show mercy to us, your people. Keep us from ever acting as if we are better than someone else. And rid us, Lord, rid us, please, of this wicked pride. Give us grace to think of ourselves as we should, as the sick in need of the great physician, as the lame in need of the great healer, as the leper in need of the great cleanser, and as the sinner in need of the great forgiver. Send us from this place. We are not of the world, Lord, but you're sending us back into the world with the uncompromised message of God's grace to sinners of whom we are foremost. Send us, sanctify us, and through us, bring glory to your magnificent Son. In Jesus' name we ask.